This is James Young with Morgan & Morgan. You're listening to the Whistleblower Attorneys Podcast, where we discuss the history of whistleblowers and how you can uncover and report fraud against the government. Brought to you by whistleblowerattorneys.com. Thanks for joining us today for episode four of this podcast. We'll be talking about the types of investigative techniques and processes used by relators, counsel, and the government alike to build and prove these cases. Throughout these podcasts, we've used the example of Mary, the nurse, who witnessed upcoding and was directed to go along with the scheme. She refused and was punished by a shift change and a floor department change. She called a lawyer, and after the initial screening, they're starting to build her case. At Morgan & Morgan, the first step that we use is the direct involvement of one of our investigators. We're lucky enough to have four retired FBI agents who help us build these cases from scratch. Our senior investigator, who you'll hear from shortly, is David Rain, former assistant special agent in charge of the Tampa Bureau Office. Dave is an amazing resource for us. He helps the other investigators build their cases in a way which we have developed to maximize the potential for government intervention. I can't go into great detail about our own trade secrets, but I will discuss some of the common sense approaches and techniques that we use. The most important first step we ask of all clients is to begin by sitting down in a quiet and private space to write or type their allegations as though they were making a movie about it. We call it the screenplay process. The screenplay should be crafted with as much detail as possible, but the beauty of doing it this way is that it creates a working document which can then be added to or corrected for as long as we need. So when Mary calls us up and we validate that she may in fact have a good case, we ask her to write up her screenplay. We prefer an electronic document, but we have had clients send us notepads full of their writings. So as Mary begins to write her screenplay, she'll include the major players and allegations and add some level of detail. But when we get her draft, we go through it with her and ask extensive follow-up questions. One of the primary things for relators to bear in mind in drafting their story is establishing the basis and foundation for their allegations. When they get interviewed by the government, they'll want to know how you know what you know. Intuition or gossip are simply not enough. So we also instruct our clients to begin identifying three buckets of evidence. In bucket one is evidence that they have in their possession. In bucket two is evidence that they don't have, but they know of and can get. And finally, bucket three is evidence that they know of, but cannot get for one reason or another. The types of evidence needed in these cases is a question we get quite often. A mistake that many new KETAM lawyers make is relying on their clients to determine what is relevant or helpful to the case. Often, clients are unaware of the value of the data at their very fingertips. For example, a text message to a client's cell phone from their boss warning them to comply with the directive is invaluable. As we'll discuss in the next podcast, the law requires a great degree of specificity in alleging these key tams. As such, we work with our clients to fill in the blanks for at least one or two specific claims. We need to give the government enough to conduct a thorough investigation and get more evidence. In addition, we can always get more information in discovery once we survive a motion to dismiss. Finally, we ask clients to build a cast list of the players, their contact information, job titles, locations, what they know or saw, 
and how they would testify if called upon. Our investigators then take all this information and begin to create what's called the Disclosure Statement, or DS. The Disclosure Statement is basically a summary of allegations and evidence that you compile and share with the government in advance of filing your case. We believe the Disclosure Statement should serve as a roadmap for the government to prove the case without having to think too much. Other firms have a different approach, where the Disclosure Statement is a short narrative from the relator. We also usually include a detailed graphical timeline that outlines the major events and players in the case. Remember, in these cases, particularly true in healthcare, the overarching fraud relates to the regulatory scheme, so a robust regulatory review has to occur before filing. Depending on the background and knowledge of the relator, we'll run through the regulatory scheme and which specific portions are being violated. If our client is unaware or unfamiliar with the regulatory scheme, we'll research it ourselves and prepare to discuss it with them in layman's terms so they can fully dissect how their experience and allegations may violate these regulations. At this point, we begin testing our theories and comparing our allegations to prior cases and settlements. This can be very time-consuming, as there are a variety of approaches to use. We use a committee of lawyers and investigators to vet our cases. We ask really difficult questions so we can have them answered before the government asks them. We often also consult with experts in whatever area the case relates to in order to ensure we don't miss anything and that we fully develop and explore all areas of fraud. Another mistake new practitioners to TAM litigation make is to limit their case to what the client reports to them. I can't tell you how many times we contact a client and ask them whether X and Y are also occurring, and they say, yes, why? Is that fraud too? You have to realize the bigger the company, the bigger and broader the fraud. At this stage, we've likely confirmed that this is a good case, but we've not confirmed that it's worth filing. There's a number of reasons why you wouldn't file a potentially good case. You must consider the impact on the whistleblower and counsel them candidly. This can ruin people's lives. You must also consider your firm's ability to litigate through trial should the government decline intervention. We next develop a damages model that is based upon the ultimate potential harm to the government. This can be challenging, though the release of CMS data sets have helped us estimate utilization nationwide. In Mary's case, she only witnessed fraud in her hospital, but they're owned by a large company that runs at least 200 other hospitals. Before we simply allege this must be occurring everywhere, we need to test and research that allegation. Sometimes, clients like Mary will have inside information or be able to corroborate this, but usually they know only about their location. Because of the size of our firm and our tremendous client base, we can often prove out broader schemes merely by talking to other clients who might work for the same company in a different location. Once we have the facts, the law, the evidence, the regulations, and the damages, we're basically ready to file. The False Claims Act requires relators to share with the government all material information they have in advance of filing. This is, again, the disclosure statement. One of the best things you can do in advance of filing a case or sending a disclosure statement is to reach out to the coordinating assistant U.S. attorney where you're going to file. In fact, this conversation should take place as early as possible. Sometimes you may learn that the area is dead to the Department of Justice, or they have a task force on point and you may not be first to file. Sometimes they might point you in another direction entirely. The earlier you reach out to the AUSA, the better. The reality is that there are not a lot of folks who practice exclusively in KETAM litigation. Your reputation is crucial. 
By conferring with government lawyers in advance of filing, you give them a heads up and get great feedback. So now we filed Mary's case. Two very important points to consider from here. First, the seal provisions kick in and you need to instruct your client not to discuss any aspect of the filing to anyone, including their spouse. We've learned to specifically cover social media in our conversations with our clients. As often, they have an ax to grind with their employer and will post something online thinking no one will see it. Trust me, they see it. Second, you need to start preparing your client to be interviewed by the government. This interview usually takes place within 60 to 90 days after filing. There are many different approaches to the government interview. Some firms try to put on a dog and pony show. Some firms simply tell their clients to show up and tell their story. Well, we prepare our clients by having them read through the disclosure statement and complaint several more times. Remember, at this point, they've already proofread both documents before filing, but having them go through it once again creates a more concrete outline of the issues in the case. Many times, clients will raise allegations about things that don't get included in the DS or complaint, and they're free to discuss those during their interview, but we try to get them to focus on what we believe is the central fraud as laid out in the complaint. At the relator interview will be any number and type of people. You can expect a civil AUSA from the district where you filed, a DOJ civil and or criminal person, as well as investigative resources like the FBI, OIGHHS, or others. In addition, you may have a state attorney general representative. The interview is an opportunity for the government to see the whistleblower, hear the story in their own words and voice, and test the basis for their beliefs. Is the relator believable? Do they have an ax to grind? Are they truthful and candid? Will they make a good witness? I won't go into detail on what occurs during the interview, but it is, as you might expect, where the government tries to establish which allegations they like and then put a plan together to prove them out. At this point, the investigation for the relator is likely over. There are times when the government might ask relators at an interview to do more digging or wear a wire or identify more witnesses, but for the most part, their role is over and now begins the government's investigation. The lead lawyer, depending on the case, will work with the lead investigator and put together a plan. In healthcare cases, the first step is usually pulling the utilization or billing from the defendant to make sure the relator's claims are verified. They'll also start talking to witnesses who are not current employees of the defendant. There will be times when the relator will get called by former coworkers freaked out over the FBI or OIG calling them. It's important to explain to relators how to handle these calls in advance advance so as not to violate the seal, but also get the most out of these witnesses. We usually instruct our clients to buttress the government investigation by telling everyone that calls them to simply do the right thing, tell the truth, it's not worth going to jail over. At this stage, the government is fairly limited on what it can do aside from what we've described. The seal restricts the government from openly sharing the case with the defendant, so they won't issue subpoenas or question current employees. They can conduct audits or site inspections under the auspices of regulatory oversight, but little more than that. These can be quite helpful, but ultimately, you hope you have enough evidence on the front end in your filing to get the government convinced. At this stage, the government may seek a partial lift of the seal in order to transition the investigation into an active and confrontational phase. Depending on its terms, a partial lift can allow the government to share the existence of the case without the actual complaint. They can also share a redacted version of the complaint which protects the identity of the relator or the entire unredacted complaint. It really just depends on the scenario. 
The bigger defendants, particularly those with prior experience dealing with key TAMs, will use this stage to try to deflect from the allegations and explain away their conduct. They'll try to convince the government that the relator is wrong or crazy, or that the conduct was not widespread or as bad as they've made it seem. A practice pointer here for Relators Council is to stay on top of the government following a partial lift. You want to be sure to get a fair chance to respond to whatever the defendants are telling them. I like to request a meeting with the government to follow any meeting they have with defendants. That way, even if they don't share anything with us, we ensure that we know when meetings occur and we remain available to rebut anything that the defendants tell them. The government's investigation may focus on a particular claim or aspect at this stage, as the defendant might have convinced them to look at one small piece of the puzzle. The investigation is winding down, and the government is close to making its decision. It could be a year, it could be four years, it could be ten years. There's really no telling. Once they make their decision, then things get interesting for relators and their lawyers you now have decisions to make for yourself. If the government abandons the central premise to your case that you know has merit, you need to be sure to revisit it with them when they make their intervention decision. Just because the government intervenes in counts one, two, and four doesn't mean you can't prosecute count three on your own at their side. In fact, you may be able to convince them down the road to join in on count three as well. Up until now, this case has been in the investigative phase. Once the government makes its decision, the case will likely be unsealed and the defendant will be made aware of the case through service of process. It's likely that if the government has decided to intervene, they have already begun settlement talks with defendants. If the government declines, as it does most often, the investigative phase turns to litigation. As I mentioned earlier, we use retired FBI agents as our investigators. Our lead investigator is former assistant special agent in charge of the Tampa Bureau, David Rain. Let's hear from David on his own views on how we build a case and what tools and techniques he uses to vet out the best of the claims. Thank you, James. I'd like to take a few minutes and discuss my role in the writing of a whistleblower case. My job is to work closely with the whistleblower and obtain as much information as possible that would support the case. We can accomplish this in several ways. We can do emails, text messages, phone calls, but probably the best way is a face-to-face -face interview with the whistleblower. We would look at documents, emails, records, and other items that the whistleblower has. After I've fully evaluated all the information and we've conducted multiple interviews, we then begin to write the disclosure statement that James mentioned earlier. Let's talk for a few minutes about the things that we need from a whistleblower. James mentioned the buckets of evidence. This is very important. The first bucket is all the records that the whistleblower has. Those would be documents, records, emails, medical bills. It could even be text messages that you've saved on your telephone. These are extremely important for us to evaluate. The second bucket are records that you believe you can get. I will work directly with you to assist you in getting the right documents. A couple of the things that I'm going to need from the whistleblower would be any type of confidentiality agreement that you would sign with your employer. If you've already left your employment, you may have signed a severance agreement and received a payment from your employer. We would definitely need to see that as the lawyers will need to review that. I would like to caution you about a couple of things. A lot of people believe that it is okay to record conversations secretly with their bosses and coworkers. Depending on the laws of the state, this can be very problematic. As we move forward, we would caution you to not record conversations with employees or the defendants. The next thing you have to be very cautious of are any documents that are marked attorney-client privilege. 
You may have obtained some of these documents, but you must let your lawyers know about them. It is possible that we will not be able to use those records. I'd like to now talk about three things that I need every whistleblower to think about. The first thing is, when you believe you have a case, you need to contact the law firm as soon as possible. This is extremely important for a number of reasons. James has already mentioned to you some of the reasons why you don't want to discuss this matter with anyone else. The second thing I would tell you is to limit your conversations about potentially filing a case or contacting a law firm. The more people that know about what you're doing can create problems for our investigation and the government's investigation. And the third thing is, don't rock the boat. What I mean by that is we are in a much better position if you can have access to records and information that we need. If you do complain and your supervisors take action against you, they could restrict your ability to get records that we need, or they could reduce your hours to times when you can't get the information that is necessary. One exception to not rocking the boat deals with patient harm issues. You may have a duty to report those, and we would encourage you to do that. So just to recap those last three items that I mentioned. First, go to a law firm as soon as you can when you believe you have a case. Second, limit your conversations. The fewer people that know, it is better for our investigation. And three, don't rock the boat. Stay calm, gather the evidence that you need, and give it to your attorneys. That's great, David. Thanks very much. Could you share with the listeners some of the techniques that you teach whistleblower clients about evidence gathering? As James explained earlier, there is a HIPAA exception to insurance fraud, meaning if insurance fraud is being committed or you believe it is, there is an exception within the HIPAA laws where you can collect that information. One of our other main investigators is Lee Walters, and Lee and I often talk with whistleblowers about how best to capture evidence at their workplace. Obviously, the best thing to do is to copy all the records that you can and to provide them to us. But unfortunately, that is not possible in all cases. Many companies today do everything electronically. So if it's not possible to copy records on a copier machine, we recommend that the whistleblower use their camera phone and take screenshots or photographs of pertinent documents that they may come across. Now let's take a few minutes and talk about the types of records you need. Remember, to file a successful whistleblower case, we must have a government insurance program that lost money. As James has already mentioned to you, the three main programs in the healthcare industry are Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE. Your efforts need to be focused on getting documents related to those three insurance programs. Unfortunately, fraud concerning private insurance companies is not of interest to the federal government. Thanks, David. One of the questions I get asked a lot from clients is, how long does this process take? And I usually tell them from beginning to end about four years. Maybe you can talk about how long it takes to put the investigation together. James, that's a difficult question to answer, as no two cases are the same. Generally, an investigator works with the whistleblower to develop the strongest allegations possible. Then our team of investigators, paralegals, and lawyers work as quickly as possible to file the case. But these cases must be accurate and supported by evidence. David, can you talk a little bit about our role in the investigative process after the relator interview? During the interview, oftentimes questions and topics come up that need to be researched and can't be answered during the interview. I work directly with the whistleblower to get the answers for the government. Remember, 
This is a partnership that we have with them. We want to provide them with all the answers to their questions as soon as possible. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll discuss the common defenses and pitfalls in litigating these cases. This is an ever-evolving aspect of this practice, so be sure to tune in. We'll cover such things as advice of counsel, statute of limitations, and the recent materiality decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in the Escobar case. Join us for Episode 5. Thank you.